Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. Welcome. My name's Lockie Walker. Today I have the privilege of continuing on in uh, Mark in the follow series. And today we're looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. It really continues on uh, in the vein of Mark chapter 7 that Jared and Simon have brought to us, uh, looking at God's grace, God's provision. But first, a story. A young woman brings home her fiancé to meet her parents. After dinner, her mother tells the father to find out about the young man. The father invites the fiancé to his study for a drink. So what are your plans, the father asks the young man. I'm a Torah scholar, he replies. A Torah scholar, mm, the father says. Admirable. But what will you do to provide a nice house for my daughter to live in as she's accustomed to? I will study, the young man replies, and God will provide for us. And how will you buy her a beautiful engagement ring that she deserves? I will concentrate on my studies, the young man replies, and God will provide for us. And children ask the father, how will you support children? Don't worry, sir, God will provide, replies the fiancé. And the conversation proceeds like this. And each time the father asks him, the young idealist insists that God will provide. Later the mother asks, how did it go, honey? And the father answers, well, the bad news is he has no job and no prospects, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. Has that got you thinking? The questions being asked by the Bible today is who do you think is God? And do we really understand God's provision? So as I said, Mark continues the theme of God's undeserved grace and Jesus' persistence to get his disciples to understand So in Mark 7, it started with the story about the clean and the unclean, and it came down to not what you did or the laws that you followed, but as Jesus quoted from Isaiah, that their hearts are far from me. It's it's from the heart that correct living follows. And the disciples asked Jesus about this parable. Are you so dull? Do you not see, he asks. It's a common phrase of Jesus when he wants the listener to carefully consider something. There's a change of understanding that's required. And then follows the story of the Syrophoenician woman's faith. She's not Jewish. She doesn't keep the Jewish law. She is as worthy to receive as as children, the children's bread, as dogs are. But Jesus heals her daughter anyway in an act of pure grace. It's not who you are, where you come from, even what you know. It's your heart attitude that counts. As this woman humbled herself before Jesus. And then another miracle, healing the deaf man. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't exactly say why, except that it's included in this chapter of being clean or not and receiving grace. A man with a defect would be considered sinful, unclean in those days. Jesus is able to restore, forgive and make new. Jesus gives freely based on heart not circumstance. Now in Mark, we're told that a large crowd gathered. What had they come to see? Who had they come to hear? 
Why would they leave the comforts of home and stay until they'd run out of food? The fact is that Jesus was so different to anyone they'd ever seen before. And this crowd had started on their own journey of following Jesus. They had questions of curiosity and hope that they would find the long-promised Messiah foretold by the prophets of God. They were willing to sacrifice their comfort to find their life-changing truth. Mark highlights the difference in Jesus, sadly, to the culture and leaders of the day by the stark quoting of Jesus in verse 2. I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Now, to you and me, that might seem like a normal thing to do. Someone's hungry, you feed them. It's one of the things we've started doing as a church recently with the Mealbox program. Uh, We've got a group of people who come together, uh, cook up frozen meals once a month, uh, give them to the emergency food centre, and that goes to needy, hungry people in our community. The leaders of the day were so bound by their rules that sometimes they even forbid people rescuing their donkeys stuck in a well on a Sabbath or providing for their own families. And this had already come up in Mark 7. And Jesus had given the Pharisees a good hammering about it. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. So for a teacher to come and have compassion in those days, that is a standout. That is the heart of God. And it's been the hallmark of his followers ever since. Can you name some famous organisations that are started by Christians and motivated by compassion and love for their fellow humans? Think of the Red Cross, Salvation Army, and World Vision just to start. But so far for Jesus, it's just an announcement. Every religion in the world makes announcements and provides teaching. Words are powerful, but they're also cheap. And this is the difference between Jesus and every other religion. He also acts with power. Not with human authority power, but supernatural Holy Spirit power. And not to show off, but to invite relationship to the Father in heaven. Verse 4, the disciples asked the question we would all ask. But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Speaking of the crowd. And that is a very good question, isn't it, if you're a mere mortal human being? Imagine in today's terms, people are hungry, maybe you'd give them a sandwich, two slices of bread, but this crowd, they've been there for three days, so let's be generous, let's give them at least four slices. 4,000 people, have you added it up? 16,000 slices of bread. That's 727 loaves you go buy 22 slices in an average loaf, 727 loaves of bread. Nobody's going to have that on hand. I'd be surprised 
if that was the production of a, a bakery in a day. What Jesus is trying to get the disciples and now us to understand is that if you come to God, seek his will, so much more can happen because he cares for us and he is able. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Not quite the 727. But Jesus isn't taking over. Jesus isn't solving this on his own. He's involving disciples so they may understand. And this is Jesus showing the simplicity that God can use whatever you have. Quantity is not the value required. Remember the story of Gideon who was up against an army of 135,000 and he was able to muster 32,000 from Israel. But God said, that's too many. I can't show my power in that. So through various means of whittling down the, the army, he cut down to 300 and God said, right, now we can do something. Or Elijah, who's in the middle of a drought and God sent him to the widow of Zarephath, who was on her last handful of flour, had a little of oil left, about to make her last loaf of bread, and then she was prepared to die. And Elijah rocks up at the door and says, can you make me a loaf of bread? <laughs> and she couldn't believe what she was hearing, but she did it anyway. And it actually happened day after day after day, and the oil in the flour didn't run out. And the Bible doesn't say how long it went for, whether it was weeks or months or maybe even a year. But we know the drought went for years. And the oil and flour didn't run out. Sometimes we might think we're insignificant. What do we have to offer? Sometimes we dream, if only we had a million dollars, you know, I could do this for the kingdom, I could start that, or I could buy the block of land or the something. What about the person in verse 7 that's coming up? Seven small fish, that's all they had. And they helped feed 4,000 people as well. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also, and he told the disciples to distribute them. It makes me think that someone's had seven small fish and they've seen what's going on and said, hang on, I want to get in on that as well. I can help. The people ate, verse 8, and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. Why pick up the pieces? I think Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand visually the magnitude of what has actually just happened. And they're not just crumbs they're scrounging around with little tweezers to try and fill the baskets. There would have been something you can pick up in your hands, decent-sized pieces. And they've come back with seven basketfuls, not a loaf. I'm not sure how big a loaf was back then, but seven basketfuls. It's probably more than what they started with and immediately highlights the miracle of grace and provision of Jesus that he's done for these people who don't know him, undeserved.
After he'd sent them away, he got into a boat with the disciples and went to the region of Delmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. It doesn't take long, does it, for the Pharisees to find his whereabouts, to come and question him some more. And what's their motivation? To test him. They also want to find the Messiah, but the, he has to do it their way. They want to see if he's going to follow the Jewish traditions or not. If he oversteps, that then they're within their rights, as the law says, as they interpret the law, to kill him. And as Jared highlighted a few weeks ago, the Pharisees guard the following of the law strongly. And it stems from the Israel's past when they had completely forgotten them, the law. And when that happened, then they followed other gods. Northern Israel was taken away to Assyria. Southern Israel and Jerusalem were taken away to Babylon because they stopped following the law. The law that is called another name is the Mosaic Covenant that God gave to Moses. And one of the penalties listed in Deuteronomy, verse 64, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And that's what happened. So to avoid this backsliding of the nation again, after they were restored through Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuilt Jerusalem, there arose this group, a little later called the Pharisees. And they were zealous for the law because they were determined not to backslide again. And for a while, several hundred years, it, it worked. They weren't cast out of their nation again. But in the time of Jesus, it's getting too much. The Mosaic law actually had 613 laws scholars have counted up, and that's recorded in the Old Testament. The Pharisees and the others had strict and specific interpretations of that, and they'd included other rules to help you understand the Mosaic rules, and it was quite burdensome for normal people to keep. What's the contrast that Jesus is making? The Pharisees who seemingly stalk Jesus and try and trip him up about the law and demand a sign, or the Syrophoenician woman who loved her daughter so much that she would come to Jesus, or a crowd who begged Jesus to heal the deaf man, or Jesus himself who had compassion on the crowds to feed them. That is why Jesus performs these signs, compassion and love. There is no love, there is no heart behind the Pharisees' request for a sign. Verse 12, he sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Jesus sighs deeply. It's from the same root word that was used in chapter 7 when he sighed and healed the blind man. In that instance, he's filled with a deep compassion to heal the man. Here the emotion comes from that same deep place, but it has connotations of lament and grief. Jesus is stricken that they could ask this. Have you ever doubted that Jesus cares? Hopefully this helps us understand that he does. He cares for the blind man. He cares for the way people ask things. And he cares for us too. The verse says, why does this generation ask for a sign? When he says generation, does he mean, is that a cultural standard that this generation has a way of doing things? 
But truly, I tell you, he says, no sign will be given to it. He doesn't perform on requests like that. They just had to follow him with open hearts, open minds to look. And they would have seen for themselves. He continually performs miracles. <laughs> what more do they need? How do we see Jesus? Is he our yes man who's supposed to answer every request, everything we pray for? God, I need a new house. I need a new car. God, I need this. Are we demanding like the Pharisees maybe? We need to stop and check our own hearts. If we don't, Jesus will anyway, won't he? Just like he checked up on the Pharisees. When will we come in humility like the Syrophoenician woman? Or do we come proudly like the Pharisees? When he left them, he got back in the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed that with one another whoops, and said, it is because we have no bread. Did they really think the Pharisees and Herod would be interested about yeast and bread? Surely there's more important things on their minds. So what did Jesus mean then? What is the yeast of the Pharisees that is being spread? It would be their teaching and their demands to keep the law that you cannot be right with God unless you do one, two, three, and four, five, six, and so on. It's heavy. It's doing the things that any religion says that you must do to be okay. And it's onerous. It's taxing on your confidence, on our hope. Religion can do that. It may ease your mind because you think, I'm doing the right thing, but it doesn't make life any easier and none of it can guarantee salvation. Life is hard enough, isn't it, with trying to, do, uh, to, uh, trying to afford things that we need, looking after a family, coping with natural disasters, coping with a pandemic. Add on top religion, and it could be like running a marathon in a suit. Have you noticed the, some of the runners in Tokyo, normally they're well-trained, they're fit, they can run their 1,500, their 10,000 metre races. And some of the runners in the 32, 35 degrees and the 90% humidity, they're really struggling. It's hard when you add things that you're not used to on top. But Jesus came and showed us a new way, a better way. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus has the authority and the power to promise these things. Back to Mark. Back to the boat. Jesus is aware of their discussion about the yeast and he asks them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? This is Jesus' hyperbole. 
at its best. He's making it very clear that they're missing the point. And the repetition is a style of writing that indicates it's very important. And he's indicating what's next. He's in effect saying, here we go, guys. I'm going to give you the point now. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? And even reading and reading this, sometimes it's still hard for us to understand. And it's taken me a while to get my mind and my heart into it of what Jesus wants. But it is very important. And there's one thing that Mark wants us as readers to understand from these events. And these are events of history. They're not just stories. Is that living by law doesn't get you any closer to God. Actions in themselves don't count. If they lead to a change of heart, good. But it's the change of heart that counts. Laws invariably are a burden to keep. And the alternative, which is argued in in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews argues it's superior, that salvation is available to anyone who would humble themselves before God, anyone who would ask Jesus for help. And it's here now. In fact, it was here 2,000 years ago, God's kingdom arrived when Jesus came. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Jesus didn't just announce a future salvation that you won't know until you get there, by which time it's too late. Jesus demonstrated by his power and authority of his promises and by his miracles of demonic deliverance, healing, and feeding of the crowds. It doesn't get any better than that. And that is why we can have confidence, absolute confidence, and a certain hope in our future when our salvation will be made complete. How do we come to Jesus? We should examine ourselves, examine our motivations. We should be motivated by love for others and not gain for self. Let's come before Jesus and ask him to show us his ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in Mark. Jesus, we thank you for your great love, your great compassion for your people. We thank you that you've showed us a better way, a higher way, a lighter way. God, would you convict us of our motivations, of the way and the why we do things? Would you fill us with your love, that we would love those around us, to be generous with the things we have, Lord, to consider what we do in light of eternity? Jesus, you are so gracious. We thank you. We love you. And we we pray that we would be changed from the inside out to be more like you. Guide us in your ways, we pray in your mighty name. Amen.